Let's go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. And um, I want to set the stage here for what we're about ready to read and study and think on. Uh, I heard a pastor say this once, and I've got to say I feel the same way. I almost feel silly <laughs> uh, standing up here and explaining Jesus' prayer to the Father to you. And yet the Lord has called me to do that. But how in the world could I improve upon what Jesus is doing here in John chapter 17? Well, I can't. Some great scholars and men and women of the, uh, 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 you know, of the faith have said things like, and, and they're not being blasphemous and neither am I, that if there was to be a more powerful, although there's not, <laughs> piece of, here it is. In other words, what we're getting ready to see is Jesus walking from the upper room. He's traveling by the Temple Mount area. If you've been, you'll know it in your mind, through the Temple Mount area. He's sorting, walking downhill. He sees the temple. Some people believe he gave this, um, or said this prayer in the temple area itself, because in the Passover, according to some accounts, the temple area was open, you know, constantly. But anyway, he was traveling and he's making his way down into the Kidron Valley, uh, which has a little stream in it. And then up uh, the Mount of Olives, guess where he's going? He's going to the Garden of Gethsemane. In other words, Jesus is ready to lay down his life for the sins of the world. That's where we are. And this is going to happen quickly now as we move forward here in the book of John. It happens quickly. He's hours away now from his death. And you know this, after he washed the disciples' feet in the upper room, after he did that, as uh, he started this upper room discourse, he talked to them and instructed them and is giving them, you know, his final words of instruction and how to live and not just survive, but thrive in, a, in an era, in a, in a world that hates Christians. And that's going to hate them initially. And then that hatred continues to, to this day. And he speaks of the, the true vine, you know that, and the coming rejection. And we've been talking and thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit and last week, uh, he gave us a prescription for joy, one that was prescribed back in that upper room or on that walk from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it still remains the prescription today. And now, watch this, just as I keep introducing this, Jesus spoke these words, verse 1, chapter 17, and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, now, the funny part about this is, this is no longer him talking to the disciples. This whole chapter is him talking to God. And the first lesson for us, just in that, as we're discipling people or sharing with people or talking to people about the gospel or giving them who the Lord is, it's a great idea after you've talked to the people about God, talk to God about the people. It's him who does the work. It's him that does the saving. He's called us just to be witnesses, not just. He's called us to be witnesses. What we've seen, what we've heard, what the Lord's done for us. And then he's asked us to pray and let him do the work. 
And this is a great lesson. Now, this is a beautiful prayer. He's going to pray for himself. That's the beginning of the chapter. He's then going to pray for the disciples that were there with him. And finally, at the end of this chapter, he's going to prepare or pray, excuse me, for all of us and all Christians for all time. Exactly. Amen. And so when I hear that, man, my ears perk up. Don't your ears perk up? The Lord prays for you. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, the Scriptures tell us, and He intercedes for us. He lives to intercede. What a beautiful Scripture. So that's what this is. This is really, this is the Lord's Prayer, folks. The Lord's Prayer is not uh, the one that says, forgive our trespasses, or forgive my trespasses. You, you know the Scripture. How could Jesus ask for forgiveness for trespasses? Exactly. My thoughts exactly. He can. He couldn't ask uh, to forgive for trespasses. When he was giving that little Lord's Prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, it was really the disciples' prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. And this gives you great insight into the Godhead. And that's why people consider this just like, who the core of all things that are sacred. I mean, this is it. This is a, dis a discussion between Jesus and His Father, the Father, your Father. Let me read you uh, a, 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 a commentary by a commentator named Trench. This is fascinating. And I want you to keep this in mind as we go through John chapter 17. Yet there is something different in this prayer, the commentator says. Jesus didn't pray just as he told his disciples to pray. The request of our Lord, thus given in John's 17th chapter, is clearly no prayer of an inferior to a superior. I want you to catch that. Constantly there is seen in it the co-equality. Let me give, take a little time out here. There are going to be groups coming to your door. Let me tell you, let me pass out some literature for you. And it's going to sound great and looks great and it's about the family and the scriptures and they're going to say a lot of scriptural things, religious Christian things, but they don't believe that Jesus is equal with God. So this is important that you see this because this is all around us. I work downtown, Market Square, everywhere. People are out passing out literature and the ultimate end of that literature is Jesus is not co-equal with God. He's not deity. Well, anyway, it says this. This is no prayer of an inferior to a superior. Constantly there is seen in it the co-equality of the speaker with the Father. The two have but one mind. Where the Son speaks, He's not seeking, this is important, to bend the Father to Him. Rather, He is voicing the purpose of the Godhead. Whoa. We're on holy ground. We are on holy ground. Re Listen to this. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may or also may glorify you. As you, has given, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world. 
amazing. Just do me a favor and pray with me. Lord, help us here. This is amazing stuff, mysterious. And yet, Lord, you've called us to think on it, remember it, access it, give our whole life to Jesus. And these are the things he spoke about himself. We'll get here in a minute to the things he spoke of us. Lord, we need help in thinking about this in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read you something again from G. Uh, Morgan Cam- or Campbell Morgan. It's a little lengthy. I know I'm not supposed to do this when I speak, but here we go. I would ever be careful lest I should appear to differentiate between the value of one part of Scripture and another. But no one will deny that when we come to this chapter, we are at the center of all the sanctities. The mission of our Lord on earth was ended, completed. I emphasize that phrase on the earth because in the fourth verse where we hear him saying, I glorify thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. That is, on the earth. Yet his greatest work remained. I want to let that sit here for a minute. The greatest work yet remained. That was to be done by his lifting up out of the earth. His work on the earth level was already accomplished, completed. And his converse with his own was consummated in the allegory of divine. Now, in this chapter, he says, we are permitted to come into his presence as under the very shadow of the cross he held communion with his father. Are you getting that? It's like the curtain was drawn back. And that interplay between the father and the son, we're allowed to peek into it and hear it and see it. No doubt. Jesus could have prayed this prayer silently, but he did it so his disciples were, could hear, and yet it would be recorded. Under the very shadow of the cross, I'm going to read it again, he held communion with his Father and did so audibly in the presence of our representatives, those first disciples. Who can doubt that the uttering of this prayer, while it was strictly communion with his Father, was uttered for the sake of that group of men? that were about him. They, through this prayer, and we, through this selfsame prayer, are permitted to come into the sanctity of the thinking of Jesus in the presence of a father immediately before the cross. That's what before is before us today. That's incredible, folks. So look, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prayers, prays a prayer for himself. But if you examine the words of Jesus here, you'll be blown away, I think. You'll stand in awe. You'll want to get back up and say, hey, worshipers, come back up here and let's worship some more. You'll want to worship because his prayer had no hint of selfishness. Father, the hour has come. What hour? Well, that's one theme of John. If you've been with us, you'll know that in chapter 2, verse 4 at the beginning, His mom comes to him at a wedding and says, I need you to get some wine. They ran out of wine. Everybody's embarrassed. Could you do some uh, wine miracle here for me or for us? And he says, lady, woman, the hour has not yet come. There's a time on which he lived, and it goes throughout the entire book of John, chapter 7, verse 6. You can look them up. 8 and 30 and chapter 8, verse 20 is when he says the hour hasn't come. But around chapter 12, that starts to switch. Verse 23 in chapter 12, he announces that the time has come. And uh, he goes on in 27 and 28. And in chapter 13, verse 1, he said the time has come. And now he says, Father, the hour has come. And what is he talking about? Well, he's certainly talking about the hour that he marches to the cross. And what's really interesting about this and makes me swell up in awe or be filled with awe is that he immediately says right behind it, glorify your son. The hour has come now to glorify your son. 
Now see, if I ask the Lord in my prayers to glorify me, here's how generally it goes. Lord, help me to be a great teacher. I don't know, maybe I don't think about this so much, but I gotta tell you, in this day and age of celebrity pastors, I think sometimes what we're praying for is more likes on Instagram and more followers and being able to write a book and give out a CD so I can sell it and maybe I could wear fancy shoes and a great watch and sit up here and be famous. I just feel that way sometimes that's happening in the Christian life. But the, uh, the, the pattern of Jesus, the life of Jesus is, Father, the hour has come, the hour of the cross, the marching to the cross, glorify your son, watch it, right behind it, so that your son also may glorify you. It wasn't a selfish prayer. It wasn't a prayer of, oh, make me famous. It was this. It was, I want you to glorify me in what I'm about ready to go through, the cross. This plan of salvation. And the reason I want you to glorify me so that people will see me and see me lifted up on that tree, die and rise again, I want everybody to see that so that they'll know the nature of you, Father, what you're like, who you are, what do we always say about the cross, folks? What do we always say? We always say, oh, if you want to see love, and I think it's true. If you want to see love, just look at the cross. But have you ever thought about this? Most of us, just be honest, most of us might love people to the point we get right up to the point and then somebody would threaten us with death somehow over a loved one. Or maybe not even a loved one, just another person, okay? Just another person. When we get to that point, we might just say, oh, shoot, okay, I didn't realize it was going to mean death. You see, when Jesus, at the point of death, went through with it, he showed us what real love is. He showed us the extent of love, what real love is, that they would that he would lay down his life for all of us, for the joy that was set before him, you, us, that joy, to see men lifted up out of their sins to a new life, to resurrected life, where they'll be with the Father in heaven forever. See, that was the all-consuming purpose of his life. I dare say, the number one purpose for his life was not that men and women be saved. It was a byproduct, though, listen, of what was the deepest passion of his life, and that was to glorify the Father. Are you getting what I'm saying? Don't take this out of here and say, I, the pastor said he does, Jesus doesn't want to save men. He does, but he wants it that way to be glorifying, though, to the Father. That's the deepest passion of his life, I think. And as a byproduct of that deepest passion, oh, the glorious and grand gospel, the, the doctrines of salvation, the plan of salvation that took place, that was figured out before the foundation of the world. The hour has come. Glorify your son. Glorify your son. Father, make me... Jesus said, not me, worthy of praise and honor and adoration that show I'm worthy of all this. Why? So that you'll be glorified in all things. It wasn't a selfish prayer. Look at in John 12. I want you to see something. Go over to John 12 and verse 23. You guys and I, I like to quote this. But Jesus answered them. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, see, he's talking about the cross. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Fruitful. 
He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. What's the hour coming for? That the grain of wheat would fall into the ground and die. Speaking of his death, and then his resurrection, and then his ascension. This is amazing stuff as we turn back to John 17. The hour has come. It's the time. Jesus lived on the timetable of the Father. And you and I need to know that because it has unbelievable implications for us. Jesus didn't get stuck here in some sort of mystery or drama. He didn't get stuck. This was all the plan of the Father. And see, that speaks to me and it should speak to you. Us, it should speak to us. It means we matter. You got a whole world system of thinking that says you climbed out of some soup and you were a mistake and you just kind of went together and now you can live like animals and what does it matter? And the gospel says exactly different. is totally opposite of that. You matter because Jesus was on the divine timetable. This is planned. For him to glorify the Father and for us to receive new life. It's incredible. You know, everything that the Lord did, you go back and study it. When Jesus healed people, when Jesus raised people, when Jesus spoke to people, uh, you look at this. Jesus, living as a man, never stopped being God, but lived as a man, all his miracles, all the things he did that you can see in the scriptures, the people ended up giving glory to the Father. So you know, it, that speaks to us. But now that we have the life of Christ, don't you love it when you go serve somewhere? Come on, be honest. And you have that little flicker of, man, I hope people know that I went and served. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 42, and I think 48 as well, but I know 42, that God shares his glory with no one. God shares his glory with no one. And I think oftentimes in that way, we steal his glory sometimes. But the Lord didn't. You see that? The Lord wanted to glorify the Father as his supreme passion of life. That's, that's really amazing. And he says... Lord, thank you, you, or Father, thank you. You've given him, me, authority over all flesh. You're glorifying the Son at the cross. And because of what he's accomplished, Jesus is saying, because of what I've accomplished, you've given me authority over all flesh. Remember, in Matthew, he says he has all authority over heaven and earth. You know this, right? It's sort of head-scratching. Philippians 2, every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I read that, you know, and I go, yeah, but nobody, not, not many people are doing it now. But they will. But they will. He has all authority over all flesh that he should give <clears throat> eternal life, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given them. This is amazing. <laughs> There's this interplay here that Jesus is talking about salvation. Do you want to know whether God chooses man's sovereign, or excuse me, God chooses and God's sovereign, or is it up to man to come to the Lord? Well, from this perspective, from this angle, look at this. As you have given him authority of all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Turn with me to John chapter 6. Verse 37. I'll go in verse 35 first. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me, watch this, will come to me. Is it God's election or man's choice? I, wouldn't, I won't say choice. I'll say, is it God's election or man's response? And the answer is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the answer is, yeah. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Praise the Lord. So when you go back, when you get the whole story here, you see this interplay. As, many, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So one of the things that when you sit down to say your prayers, won't you be on your knees saying, oh, thanks, I was given as a gift. I'm a gift. I was a sinner. You saved me and gave me. As a gift. It's incredible. And so, let's just speak for a minute. What is eternal life? It means life with God. Eternal life is life with God. And what's amazing about what the scriptures say is that His very life comes into your heart spiritually. Comes into your life. You have the life of Christ. When does eternal life start? It's the minute that you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. It's not when you die and go to heaven. It's now. It's the life of Christ. You have the very life in you. And so what does it take? I want you to pay very close attention here. And the reason I want you to pay very close attention here is because many people know a lot about Jesus and don't know Jesus. In fact, the Bible tells us in James that even the devils know Jesus. The devils know Jesus now. They know the scriptures. They know who he claims to be. They flee at his name. So this has to be something different or more than just intellectual assent to who Jesus is. And this is eternal life, that they may know you. Who's he praying for? people, the people who are going to be followers, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I want you to know this. I want you to see this. I want you to make sure in your heart this is what it is for you. To know somebody biblically is to know them intimately. And not only just in a physical way, we're talking about this back and forth communion between people. And that's how we're to know the Father. There ought to be in our life an ongoing experiencing of the Lord, a more relating of the Lord as we grow in him. It's not just something we learn and we outline and we learn the facts and we're so up on the facts. It's knowing him. It's coming to him in the mornings and in the evenings and when we're distressed and when we're joyful and sharing with him and let him share with us. How does he share with us? Well, he's doing it right now. And we talk to him and we walk with him. Yeah, who said that? And he tells us we're his own, right? And that's so true. And so we ought to be having a, this ongoing thing where we're relating to the Lord. And that is eternal life. Isn't that funny? What's eternal life, Jesus? Well, this is eternal life. He tells you plainly that they would know the Father, not just intellectual ascent. It's a giving of a life over to everything that the Father says. And the first thing that comes out of the, or on the Father's agenda is that you look to Jesus for your salvation. Praise me, the Lord says, not me, <laughs> for Jesus, because by the blood of the Son, by the blood of my Son, I can now, you can now come into my throne room boldly to find mercy and grace. Before, you had to wait. Some guy had to go one time a year, go into the back room, sort of just do something, come out and said, yeah, it's finished. Now, we can go anytime. We could be in the car. We could be shaving. We could be listening to music, whatever. We could be walking in the woods. We're here and we're praised. By the blood of Christ, access is open. We have access. 
And that's important. And we have eternal life. Boom! That life with God. He's the most creative, the most loving, the most just, the most majestic, the most personal, the most loving. And he wants you to come, and we stay away because we have every hobby known to man. And we choose those above the Lord. And they become idols. And that's why he says, get rid of those things. Because the safest and healthiest and greatest place to be is communing with me. That's what the Lord says. And yet we don't. We're so busy. We're so important. The Lord is looking for people that know him and can be known by him, you see. That he's the only true God and know Jesus Christ who was sent by the Father. And Jesus says this, I've glorified you on the earth. How did he do that? Well, here in a few hours, he's going to say, to tell us die. It is finished. That great phrase in the Greek that means the masterpiece is concluded. You can't add one more stroke to the painting, one more etching to the drawing. You couldn't move punctuation to the fantastic novel. The Sistine, whatever. The people would use in the Greek, it's finished, it's perfect. And that's what Jesus did with salvation. He has finished the work. He's accomplished. And that's a great lesson for us. We spoke about this in the Minor Prophets. As the people came back from the Babylonian captivity, they started out on the house of fire, and they just sort of went into their houses and took care of their stuff. And the Lord's house sat still. Here, Jesus, praise the Lord, finished the work that the Lord gave him. And oftentimes when we're dry, spiritually, one of the things that maybe we should ask ourselves, what is the last thing the Lord did or asked me to do and I just blew it off? You ever done something like that? I have. The Lord asked me to start a home fellowship here in Pittsburgh. I moved to Pittsburgh and I said something like this, and I don't mean to be blasphemous, but Lord, I'm not sure you know what you're talking about because I don't know anybody here. I've never lived here. I only know my wife's college roommate and I know her husband and I don't know nobody else, so I'm not going to do it. I mean, I didn't say it that way, but that's what I said. And it just kept denying and just kept denying. And I told you this story last week, and then my dad died. Boom, out of the blue. And I knew, whoa, wait a second. Time is short. Lord, I know you're using this to speak to me about that. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to do it, Lord. And wherever you have us do it, we'll do it there. We, we don't have a big house, Lord. Don't worry about it. Just do it. We don't have babysitters. Don't worry about it. Just do it. Well, nobody will come. Don't worry about it. Just do it. I'll take care of those, the Lord said. Just the last thing that the Lord's put in front of you. Just like Nike, just do it. That's what Jesus did. Praise the Lord that Jesus finished the work. Can you imagine if he didn't do it, but he did, and he willingly did it, how do I know? Because he just prayed for it. That's some of the beauty of John 17. Lord, Father, glorify me. In other words, take me to the cross. That's what he's saying. Take me to the cross so that you could be glorified. It was hard. It was difficult. The wrath of God is poured out on his son at the cross. And yet, the worst thing that man, the enemy of our soul, could throw at us, death, Jesus conquered as he raised up out of that grave. And now death is forever defeated. If he didn't accomplish this or go to it or if he stopped short, whoa. In other words here, the beauty happens when the Lord calls us to the hard things. But Americans don't want it. They just want to live in their white picket fence and save for the vacations and play golf. 
and don't get into my business and I won't get into your business. And if something's hard, let's just walk away from each other. And the Lord says, whoa, wait a second. If I've called, he calls his greatest soldiers to the hardest things. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself. Isn't that fascinating? He's claiming deity here, folks. The glory which I had with you before the world. He's praying. Listen, do you catching this? That's a claim to being eternal. Deity, full restoration to the glory he had before the time that he came as a baby in a manger, pre-incarnate glory, when he left the Father's side. And that should be touching for you because in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, he said, for our sakes, he became poor. In Psalm 22, it said he became lower than a worm. And he stooped out of heaven for you so that you and I could be rich. He made himself of no reputation Philippians 2 said, no reputation. Can you imagine? No reputation. What do we do? Oh, man, make sure if somebody says something bad about me, oh. He made himself of no reputation, even to the point of death. But it doesn't just stop there. It says death on a cross, Philippians 2 says. In other words, he suffered the ultimate in humiliation. The ultimate. So he says this as he shifts gear now and he prays for his disciple, I've manifested your name to the men who you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. So I have manifested your name to the men. What's that mean? It means fleshed out, shown forth. If you want to see who God is and what God's like. Look at how Jesus responded in all the circumstances to the sick, to the poor, to the rich, to the hypocrites, to the lepers. You want to see what God's like? Look at Jesus. He manifested what? The character of God. That's why he says your name. All of who you are, your attributes, all manifested through Jesus. Oh, by the way, time out. If you've come into a living relationship with Jesus Christ, you've surrendered your life to Jesus. You know, you think your, your life is about IRAs and 401ks and Roth are in the blah, 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 blah. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3 that you're an open letter to the world of who Jesus is. You're an epistle an open letter to the world. The world system and the way it thinks and the hatred, they're all looking to Christians. They're looking at us. And maybe they're privately poker, you know, publicly poking fun, but they're watching for reaction and love and forgiveness. And we spend our time on Facebook hating different political parties. Amazing to me. But we're an epistle. Jesus manifested himself to the world and to his disciples. We're epistles. And he says, they now know all things which you have given me are from you. I've told them all that I'm doing here. I'm living in perfect dependence upon you, Father. And they're seeing how that happens through a man. The prayers, the thanksgivings, the response to the poor and the oppressed. They've known all things which you have given me. They know that everything I have is from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them and they have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Now watch this. I pray for them. I don't pray for the world. Just don't be jammed up by that. He can't, he, God so loved the world that he became, you know, he gave his only begotten son. God loves the world. He came into the world so that men and women, their sins would be saved. He's going to pray for all the people later on in this prayer. But right now he's praying for his disciples, the people who are with him. 
but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine. <laughs> Come on, he's claiming deity again. <laughs> he just keeps doing it over and over, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name. How are they kept? How are people kept? How are the disciples kept? Through the character and nature and attributes of the Father. Kept from what? Kept from sin. You have now power where before you didn't. You have now power to resist temptation. You have knowledge and discernment to keep yourself out of apostasy or heretical things. Right? You have all, uh, you have power over the darkness. Not you, but in the name of Jesus. He defeated all the dark forces. You have, watch, you're kept from death. Now, not physical death. But he's made all those things right so that you could come and be with him forever. You've been, they've been kept and you've been kept and we've been kept. But we've been kept by the powerful name, the things of the Lord that they may be one as we are. Wow, amount, uh, amazing statement. And what are they one in? What are they unified in? They're unified in love. They cooperate in work, the same mission. They're unified in, you know, the plan of salvation and all those sorts of things. And that's what the Lord's saying about these men. Which, by the way, is an amazing thing. Just think about it for a minute. You who tend to be hard on yourselves. See, there's a faction in the church of people who beat themselves up constantly. And then there's a faction in the church of people who think the gospel is the license to do anything they want and just ask for forgiveness. And that's neither one of them are accurate. But here, I want you to see that he's talking to disciples who in just a few hours are going to abandon him. But he has plans and purposes. And doesn't that just, don't you just say, whoa, thank you, Lord. He who starts that good work in me he is going to complete it and finish it. And it's going to be according to his goodwill and purposes and his pleasure. Wow. So he keeps us through, the, or he keeps them through uh, uh, his na the name of the Father, those whom you've given, and uh, that they may be one as we are, cooperating in the mission, etc. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. We talked about that. These whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except who? Judas, the son of perdition. That the scripture might be fulfilled. You could read Psalm 41.9 or Acts 120 or, Act, or excuse me, Psalm 109.8, and you'll see that there's a scripture that Judas was going to go that way, or excuse me, prophecies that Judas, Judas was going to go that way. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world. This is fascinating to me. The Lord's leaving. I wouldn't have guessed this is what he's going to try to leave to them so that when they're being beaten or persecuted or put to death, I just didn't think, I just this. And so what I'm trying to tell you is how important you understand this to be. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with Greek. Do you all agree? Or Greek. Grief, not Greek. And yet he had that oil of gladness. There was something so joyful about him that when the disciples looked and watched for three years, they just, they knew. And remember last week we studied joy and one of the definitions of joy, ready this for this? Happiness, but watch, it's not happiness based on circumstance. Get that out of your mind. It's happiness 
gladness based on spiritual realities. And Jesus had it. And he says here, now, my, uh, uh, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy, my joy, Jesus's joy. He wants that for you. Can you be a person who grieves or sorrows or go through, goes through times where you feel like you're in the valley and still be joyful? And the answer is certainly yes. In fact, last week we studied, he doesn't want to replace your sorrow with joy. He wants to transform what is sorrowful in your life and make it the very thing that's joyful. And we talked about that. And he says, I want you to have fulfilled joy, be full of joy, and I want you to have mine. I have given them your word, the scriptures, and the word is, world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, watch this, but that you should keep them from the evil one. <laughs> Folks, the monastic lifestyle... I just don't think that's what the Lord has for us. Just to go be off in a mountain somewhere and just chant all day and be quiet. Are there times when we need to do that? Of course. He said, go away. Come away with me. Rest. Pray. But I'm talking on the full scale, that's a life lifestyle. Here Jesus said, I'm not taking my disciples out of the difficult things. I just want the evil one to be kept from them. But they'll be in the difficult parts. You should keep them from the evil one. They're not of this world, just as I'm not of the world. And then he says this, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Do you think that I just come up here? Do you really? I mean, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Pastors, I, I don't know. I'd better be quiet. What we're interested in is you knowing the word, not so we can say, oh, well, we have 4,000 people we serve on Sundays. Not that. No. See, what happens is we don't want just crowds for crowds' sake. We want you to be set apart more and more and more by the truth of his word. It's what transforms. There's no shortcut to it. He says, Oh my goodness, there's going to be very difficult times and I want them to have my joy and I want them to be set apart and fit for use. That's what sanctify means. Fit for use. And the way that's going to happen is by my word because my word is true. As you sent me into this world, I also have sent them into the world and for their sakes... I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now, don't get the idea that Jesus wasn't sanctified. But what he's saying is, I'm going to go farther. I'm marching to the cross. The Lord still got a use for me, so to speak, and that's the cross. And when that happens, you will remember these words, and these words, the true nature of these words, are going to sanctify my disciples. Folks, there's no substitute. If you claim the name of Christ, as the Lord calls you to the mission field of wherever that is, could be your home. Well, it is your home, not could be. It is your home. Your workplace. The way in which he makes you sanctified and set apart for that use is by the word. There's nothing else. And it's not just that you know it sort of intellectually and you get your little three by five card and you remember the verse. Do do that. The Bible says it'll keep you from sin. But more than that, obey it, trust it, relate to it, think about it, meditate on it, share it, make it your all in all so that you'll come to know Jesus in a deeper and more profound way and keep trusting and keep loving when people are not trustworthy or not loving to you. And the Lord will take it, the Word of God, implanted in the child of God, and by the Spirit of God, He'll give you this ability and resource to do the very thing that He's calling you to do. Fit for use. 
Then he shifts gears again and he says, I don't pray for all these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, if you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ through the word of God, he's praying for you now here in John chapter 17. Isn't that cool? And he says this, that they all may be one. All may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. I just want you to see something. Do you know what ecumenicalism is? It's this institutional move to force people to join together, sort of, in truth, or uh, excuse me, in Christian, Christian circles. And all I got to say is, I want you to see something. Unity, according to what I read, is not uniformity or institutional forced get-togethers. Unity comes from the very life of Jesus himself. If, you're in, uh, if Jesus is in me and I am in him, the church down the street, if Jesus is in them and he's in them, you get it. But I don't think Jesus is saying, you know, like that group over there, this isn't bad. They like to sort of worship and their style of worship is this way. And they do, well, that's fine. And we sort of just, but, but when we get together, when we get together, we're not forcing it, but when we get together, there's this thing we just know. Oh, wow, you love the Lord, don't you? We're brothers and sisters and see, that life, this is the beautiful part. Instead of forcing it on any, everybody, if we just lived like that, because the gospel automatically takes down all the barriers that men have erected. It takes down class. It takes down race. It takes down everything. And so you see it here. What is real Unity, it's the life of Christ that we possess in our hearts. It's not being forced to be together. You're looking at me like, what is he even talking about? Well, that was a great move in the late 70s and the 80s and the 90s for people to come and sign charters that we're all getting together. But the problem is, how do I get together with somebody who says a pastor can be homosexual? How do I do that? How do we do that? And I love homosexuals, and so do you. How? I mean, what do I do when the Baptist guy says, we want to get together, and, uh, and I love Baptists? Or not Baptists. Maybe it is Baptists. I don't know. Anyway, the, the, the church down the street, when they want to uh, baptize babies, well, they can't make a decision for Christ. So we say... You can't baptize babies. You can dedicate them unto the Lord. And when they grow up and they give their life over the Lord, we're going to be right on the footsteps, you know, ready to baptize them. We love it. But what do you do when that happens? How can you be forced to be together when we believe two different things there? And those are significant things. Can we still love one another and engage? Of course. I'm going to get in trouble for this, huh? <laughs> Some of you are looking at me like, uh-oh. But you get what I'm saying, right? You know what Charles Spurgeon said? For you people who are of the Reformed bent. Charles Spurgeon said on these verses about unity, he said, as much as you cultivate love, cultivate truth. Because... Real love is truthful, but watch, folks, for you who like to beat people over the head. But real truth is loving. So Spurgeon said, cultivate both. Okay, I'll, I'll jump. <laughs> I can see you want me to. <clears throat> Verse 22, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them. I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. Again, unity comes from the life of Christ. And I just want you to see one verse, and then we'll have 
the worshipers come up here in a minute. And I want you to see Romans 8. I want you to go there. I want you to see something so astounding. Verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. I want you to catch this. You've been called. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, you've been called. These he also justified. If you've given your life over to Jesus, you've been justified. The gavel in the, the courtroom of God because of the blood of Jesus comes down and says, you're not guilty. That's incredible. I want you to see how incredible that is. You've been chosen and you've been declared not guilty. And the word means just as if you never sinned. That's amazing, but watch. One more thing. He also glorified you. That's true of you now. Will you be glorified in heaven? Yes, but you're glorified now in a way too. And <clears throat> let me tell you what Ray Stedman says about what glorify means. So Ray Stedman's a pastor near Palo Alto, had a massive church, has amazing writings. He's been gone to be with the Lord now, but he says what glorified means is that you bring to the surface all the things that make up the final product. Like, what do you mean? Like he says, like the sun, I'm not very good in science, but the sun have all these gases and blah, 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 that sort of mix and then kabang, make something amazingly glorious. You get what I'm saying? So that when you look at Jesus, you're seeing God's grace and truth that makes God glorious and, of course, Jesus glorious. And now I want you to see the truth about the Christian. And he said it in John, he was praying it in John 17, and Paul writes about it in Romans 8, 29, and 30, that you have been glorified. In other words, your life is called for this boom, this light, this salt that shines forth the gospel because Jesus lives inside you by the Spirit of Christ so that when the little things of life come to you that you always think, and so do I, are big things, like, oh my goodness, can you believe that girl talked about me at the soccer game? She spread it around the PTA. And now you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go line up on Facebook and I'm just going to let her have it. Now see, that's not the way Jesus lived. Jesus lived by keeping his mouth quiet so that the Lord, the Father, would do the battle for him. And I'm just picking out one little example, but what I'm saying is that you're, go you're called your whole life. I know what your mission is. I know it. I don't know if you're supposed to go to Yale or Harvard or pick this job. or I don't know that, but I do know this, that your life is to be a boom, an explosion of God's glory. Made up of all these things, this life that's in you, that comes out in all these different ways. You're kind to people who aren't kind. You're loving to people who aren't loving. You forgive people even when they've hurt you. You get it? And you're, Jesus prays for it. And Paul writes here, that prayer is answered. And you and I, we need to live in that by the Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? If we did this, oh my, if we did this, I'll finish. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. See, that's where real unity is. It's that life of Christ 
I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me. <sighs> Can you believe this? He's saying right here, I'm praying for all those people down the corridors of time, which would include us, that you would give them the glory that he has, because he's given us the spirit, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And now these people, the people that I'm praying for, all of them are going to have an impact in bringing other people into the kingdom. There's your, there's your mission, folks. There's your identity. There's your life. That's what it is. If you go and you be a PT person, if you be a doctor or you be a lawyer, don't be a lawyer, don't be a lawyer. But if you're a lawyer, if you're an electrician, if you're a Lyft driver, it doesn't matter. Wherever God's planted you, it's that people would see his glory and give their lives to him. Wow. You have sent me and loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you has given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world, a peak into the inside of the, God, or the Godhead. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known uh, that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love which you loved me may be in them. Do you, do, you, do you get how staggering that is? When we're found in Christ, the object of God's love is us. Oh my. He loves us and I and them. Love is an indwelling presence of Jesus. Oh my. And some of us just need to know that to move on, to get unstuck. The Father loves you. You may have been with terrible parents or great parents, or you may have been with people that didn't care about you, or you may have given the raw deal at work or you didn't get the bonus or the relationship didn't work out. But the Father loves you. And His joy never depends upon circumstances. So as we ask our worshipers to come back here, I say to you again, sort of like G. Campbell Morgan, and others, I almost feel silly for trying to explain this. This is prayer perfection. If you want to live in the world <clears throat> and do what God's called you to, there's only one way <laughs> it's not by knowing the facts. It's about knowing the person of Jesus and being known by him and moving out in his power. You're going to have the opportunity to do this. And you know why? Because you're going to leave here, Lord willing. <laughs> Lord willing. That's funny. Am I locking up today? No, I'm kidding. You're going to leave here. And as soon as you walk out that door, you're going to come into contact with people who don't know Jesus. And yes, we'll share the gospel. We should share the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and what? Not just hearing some great statements, but by hearing the word of God. But they're also going to be watching. Even if they said they hated you or hated what you stand for, they'll still watch. And God, in his infinite wisdom and love and justice and mercy and majesty, he knew that these people and some of us were going to have mistakes and sins and 
go off the rails and go down the trail we shouldn't go. And he still, he wants us to come back with the power so that we'll live our lives fully ablaze for him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come here this morning truly humbled and grateful for your powerful word that shows the prayer of Jesus. The Lord's Prayer, the real Lord's Prayer. And Lord, may these things be knit to our hearts and our very beings. Lord, give us the power and strength to go and live this out as you live to intercede for us so that before you come back, Lord, all that we are, may we lay it all on the line so that many would come into your kingdom as you give them over to the Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.